Hello and welcome to the Bigger Picture Podcast. My guest today is Louise Hockley, a Principal Research Scientist at NORC of the University of Chicago, and her research focuses on loneliness. We spoke about what loneliness actually is and how it is that we can feel lonely even when we're surrounded by people. We spoke about why loneliness is so painful to us on a visceral level and how we're hardwired for connection. Louise's work has shown the significant consequences that loneliness can have on our mental health and on our physical health. Loneliness really distorts the way we perceive the world, and it can have really serious hormonal, physiological, and genetic effects. We also spoke about why loneliness has increased in our modern world, and finally, what we can do about it. So without further ado, hope you enjoy. We're all familiar with the feeling of being lonely, but we don't necessarily feel lonely uh, when we're alone. And we can also feel lonely when we're surrounded by people. So there is this paradox. What is loneliness in terms of how you study it? We define loneliness in a very distinct way. We talk about loneliness as being the unpleasant or aversive feeling when what you want out of your social relationships is not what you're getting, or at least not what you perceive you're getting. It can be that you have fewer relationships or interactions than you would like, but more likely it's the case that your relationships don't meet your needs for the kind of quality that you need, the, the characteristics of that relationship that satisfy your idiosyncratic needs for a sense of connectedness. Right. So that sense of connectedness, I think, is a really important piece here. The fact that, uh, you know, we might be surrounded by people, but we don't feel connected to them. We don't feel like people right. understand us. Uh, we don't feel like we belong. These are things that uh, come up, yeah. you know, in, uh, um, in the descriptions of loneliness. Uh, so I think uh, it's really important to understand, you know, what, uh, what is that subjective feeling and what differentiates it from, you know, just being alone? Because Paul Tillich has a great quote, uh, loneliness expresses the pain of being alone, uh, but solitude expresses the glory of being alone. Right. So right. we could also really enjoy it. So yes. you make a distinction between um, objective social isolation and perceived right. social isolation. How does perceived isolation differ from objective isolation? So right. objective isolation, at least when we're researching it, but in most people's minds, what they think of when they think of isolation is being alone. And it can be literally being alone, but not necessarily by choice. That's Paul Tillich's uh, quote. But you, I mean, in the sense that you can be content being alone. But if, if it's against your choice um, and you feel you have no control and you find yourself alone, meaning not only potentially living alone, which doesn't have to be negative, but having very few interactions, not participating in any groups, not having any close friends or seeing them very rarely. These are all measurable aspects of people's social context and social activity. And that's what we refer to when we're talking to objective isolation. Subjective isolation is a perception that you are alone in a um, 
psychological sense. It's the feeling that you, nobody has your back. You don't feel like you have anybody you can confide in. You don't feel like you belong to a group as you alluded to, or any kind of an organization. Oftentimes church attendance or any kind of religious organization can provide that sense of belonging. And some people don't experience it there either. So it's the sense, the feeling, the perception that you don't have that social safety net. Right, right. And why is loneliness so painful to us on a visceral level? Right. I think of it, and when I was working with John Cassiopo, it was the same kind of um, context, this evolutionary context. We're social beings, and we're not the only ones. There are many social creatures in this world who really rely on having others of their kind around them. And that provides them with um, the ability to thrive. We're not made to survive and thrive on our own. We need to cooperate with others. We need the support of others. We need the sense of safety. I like the uh, Dave Eggers book, um, uh, Small work of staggering genius or something like that. I don't remember the exact title, but he talks about how his social context, his social network of friends was like a snowshoe with all the cross threads that supported him walking across the snow so he doesn't sink in. Our social networks do that for us. They hold us up. And it's just a healthy uh, way to not only feel good, but it's also, as we'll probably get into, it's also more for our health as much as anything. Right, right. And just to give people a snapshot of where loneliness is these days, you know, in terms of how lonely are people? And I know there's this, uh, you know, obsession in uh, trying to determine whether we are in a loneliness epidemic, you know, if we've reached the threshold, uh, but whether or not we have, what is some of the data that you're familiar with uh, showing um, how people are lonelier these days? Yeah. Most of my recent research has involved older adults. And <clears throat> we have looked specifically at, um, let's say, the 50 to 85, 95 and older group. And I've been tracing what's happening to their loneliness over time. And then even more interesting recently, bringing in a new cohort. So initially we had the, the silent generation, the great generation. We had older adults from prior generations. Now we're starting to see the baby boom generation age into that older adult group. And when we looked at how loneliness had changed or differed between these generations, there wasn't a difference. If anything, the baby boom generation was less lonely than the older generation. That was true also in data from um, the Netherlands, data from England. Um, th there seems to be in older adults no evidence of an epidemic. I'm using that term very in a very specific way. When we talk about epidemics, we usually are talking about a proportion of people who are affected. I mean, our population is growing. There will always be more lonely people the more people we have. But as a proportion of the population, it's not growing in the older adult group. 
It's less clear that that's the case among young adults. It seems there is some evidence that there is an increase in loneliness in a kind of a per capita way, per proportion of younger people. Uh, most of those studies don't have as clear um, or as generalizable a sample. They don't have a random representative sample of the population, but it looks like there is an increase in loneliness in let's say high school students and into young adulthood. Certainly the big studies that have been conducted, um, even if they aren't completely representative, the big studies here in the US show that there is a high prevalence of loneliness. That raises another issue. When I talk about loneliness as though it's an on-off switch, you are or you aren't, that is not how we talk about it in research terms. It's a practical way of talking about it, but loneliness exists on a continuum. There are people who feel little to no loneliness ever, but I would venture to say most people have experienced it at least once to some degree, um, but it goes all the way across the continuum to very lonely, very often lonely, very intensely lonely. And what we're talking about when we say people are lonely or not is we're creating a cut point. We're deciding, okay, at this point, we're gonna call you lonely. At this point, you aren't. That's very arbitrary. That's not to say that people on both sides aren't misclassified. But if we take a given cut point and say, okay, this is loneliness, we can often say with young adults in particular that there are more of them proportionately than there used to be. Right, right. And I think, uh, you know, you are touching upon an important point here. We all experience loneliness, you know, we all have bouts of loneliness, but uh, this chronic feeling of loneliness, right, experiencing yeah. it every single day, uh, or for extended periods of time, that's really where we see these effects. So you have done a lot of uh, great research on the effects of loneliness. Um, I would love to start with the mental health effects in mm -hmm. terms of how loneliness really almost restructures how we perceive the world. So mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about that. Yes. Um... If you think of mental health, or if I think of mental health, I think of things like depression. And we certainly see that loneliness predicts an increase in depressive symptoms. Um, a little bit of the reverse, but predominantly loneliness feeds depression rather than depression feeding loneliness. What I think you're alluding to is the um, cognitive processes that instantiate what we have sometimes called the loneliness regulatory loop. Why is mm -hmm. it that loneliness persists and, and gets worse? I mean, most people um, don't suffer loneliness intensely or for long periods of time. And that arises in part because uh, we think of loneliness as a biological motivation to connect. It's just like hunger or thirst. We need other people and we have the brain mechanisms, the neural circuitry that makes sure we actually do that. And people typically heed that signal. They feel the pain and they do what they do for physical pain, get away from it, or go toward the source of good food rather than away from it. That's in brain circuitry. I'm thinking here of the reward circuitry with dopamine release. You get that with food, you get that with sex, you get that with good social connections. 
You also get pain circuitry activated. You see pain circuitry uh, for physical pain pretty much, there's some controversy around that, but pretty much the same circuitry involved for the, the social pain of feeling disconnected, of feeling lonely. So yes, you do have um, a motive to avoid or get out of loneliness, but if you're not successful for whatever reason, um, you will start to fall prey to other things that accompany loneliness. One of the things that accompanies that feeling of, of isolation is sort of implicit anxiety. If you don't know that you've got people around you, if you're not sure that you can count on the people around you, that creates a um, defensive barrier as well. I mean, you're very watchful. Like, I got to take care of myself because I don't have anybody else around here to help me out. But it's also defensive in the sense that if I can't trust people, I'm going to be very careful on how I interact with them because who knows, they may actually do me harm. They may actually make me feel worse. So I've got to be very careful. And typically what happens is it turns into a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you expect people are going to treat you less than you would like them, less well than you would like them to, um, you start feeling like, oh, that's exactly what I thought might happen. It's actually happening. I'm going to have to be even more careful. And so you start emanating signals that you're not very disclosing. You're going to be very careful. People respond to that. If they don't see that you're open and receptive, they won't engage at the level that you want to engage. So it's a, it's a dyadic uh, relationship. You have to work at it from both sides. But if the lonely person is sending out these signals, they don't even realize that they have some control over this. If they would change their approach, they might actually elicit a better interaction with the person they're with. So yes, you get that um, feedback from relationships, interactions that makes you feel either more or less um, justified in, in doubting your relationship partner. So confirmation bias comes in, in behavior, in in emotions, in cognitions, and that feeds into additional, more negative interactions, just creating a loop where you get worse and worse, or it lasts longer and longer. And so you need a way out of that loop to recover. I think this is so important because people who are lonely and have been for a long time really don't see a way out. And the thing they need most is, uh, you know, also the source of anxiety, because usually loneliness comes with a lot of social anxiety. Uh, and I think it's really important to know that one of the things that we can do to help us uh, deal with social anxiety, first of all, it's, um, you know, get out there. It's something that we have to, to face and confront. Uh, right. But one of the things that most people don't know about social anxiety um, is that if you are in a social interaction and you're constantly thinking about yourself and how am I being perceived, mm -hmm. uh, that really uh, makes the anxiety worse, right? That yes. really spikes up the anxiety. And if you focus on others, you know, you focus on how they're doing, being interested in them, just these mm -hmm. basic uh, things of, of asking other people questions, 
you find that slowly the the focus isn't on you. You're not worried about how am I being perceived. So there's little things like that uh, that really help. Uh, and I think I think that you know understanding that these social skills are something that we build um, with right. within social interactions, right? We need that practice. We need that constant feedback. Uh, and the less we have it, you know, the harder it becomes. It just reminds me of a study we did with the Department of Defense here in the United States where we did an intervention um, with the Army where during the time when there was a lot of struggle in the army with high suicide rates, um, they were trying various approaches to improve the fitness and fitness was used in a very comprehensive way, the fitness of soldiers, and it included their social fitness. And so under Cassiopo's direction, a, a clinical trial, a randomized, double dissociated randomized controlled trial was done um, at Joint Base Lewis-McChord, and a lot of soldiers were participating in this. And what the intervention was, was a training system, teaching people um, all of the social skills that you're talking about, I would say, included in there, because they did things like um, learning about perspective taking, and the fact that we are really bad at taking perspective. But we assume we're right. And so one of the lessons there is verify, check. I mean, you may think that this guy has it in for you. But if you talk to him, maybe you find out he's in a crappy mood because his mom just died and he's not able to get back. Things like that affect our perception of the other person. And that affects our own behavior and our own feelings. So perspective taking was a big one. Empathy, yes, developing a better sense of empathy, what the other person is thinking was another part of that training. And so um, there were a lot of measures that were used to assess the impact of the training, but it was very clear that things like perspective taking and empathy were part of the success story that contributed to lower loneliness in those who got that training. Right. I think empathy is an important point here because I have uh, seen that uh, loneliness has been correlated with lower levels of empathy. And that makes sense if we know that um, higher levels of stress can reduce our empathy, right? We're so worried about protecting ourselves that it's much harder uh, to think of others. And this has really been found uh, neurologically. You know, lonely people have, were shown uh, a photos of other people experiencing negative things and that usually lights up a, a certain part of the brain uh, and it uh, there was much less activity there uh, so uh, you know this is hardwired and I think that this picture of uh, you know the lonely person that we've uh, we've constructed here the chronically lonely person uh, who's hyper vigilant who's pessimistic who's socially anxious um, almost neurotic you know and and seeing that on a societal level uh, that that is uh, very concerning, right? We yeah. do need those social connections to orient us and how we see the world, you know, and yeah. on an individual level, but also on a societal level, we really do right. see the consequences of people who are constantly socially isolated. 
I do want to move into now the uh, physical aspects because you have found that loneliness really has a strong impact on our physical health. Uh, so right. that, you know, and I understand that it has a very strong effect as well on uh, the inflammation uh, in the body, yes. right? We, we see this chronic inflammation. So can you tell us a little bit about how loneliness affects these markers? Perhaps I'll start with one of the um, studies that kind of triggered attention being given this, which was the meta-analysis showing that uh, studies where they assess loneliness and mortality rates found that lonely people die sooner than their non-lonely counterparts. Um, that kind of finding has also been seen for objective isolation. In either case, what we're as researchers interested in is how did we get there? Like, are they sicker? And that's where we start looking at various, especially in older age, chronic conditions. And in fact, in lonelier people, you see um, higher rates of cardiovascular disease, and that includes coronary artery disease, stroke, um, even heart failure could be put in that category. Very clear association there between loneliness and cardiovascular, adverse cardiovascular outcomes. Um, more recently, we see more studies showing that loneliness predicts the onset or maintenance of diabetes, type 2 diabetes, another inflammatory disease, as is cardiovascular disease. Um, we do see hypertension, um, higher blood pressure among lonelier people, which puts them at risk of reaching a, a hypertensive level as per the doctor's definition of it. Um, there's a lot of research on physiological processes that are affected that could affect both disease and mortality, perhaps more directly, if not indirectly. Um, for example, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenocortical axis, big, big name for what ultimately we're interested in is the release of cortisol and the stress impact of over or under controlling cortisol secretion and activity in the body. And that is in part where we saw an interesting effect when we looked at gene expression. So there we were looking at people who were chronically lonely, meaning we had people who we know were at the high end of that loneliness scale for three consecutive years. And we had some who were at the low end of that scale. And then we looked at white blood cell gene expression. And what we found were the genes that were hyper-expressed, up-regulated is how we often call talk about it, um, were those that were pro-inflammatory in nature. They would have contributed or the, those particular genes are known to be active in launching, exacerbating inflammatory processes through various chemical mediators. At the same time, those gene expression, that gene expression study, the first one and several since, um, showed that there was an underexpression of those genes that control inflammation. And so those compounds that normally would have held inflammation in check, um, if the genes were actually doing the job they indicated by their over and under expression levels, 
we were predicting that we're not going to see those chemical mediators that help to squash inflammation. So in lonely people, you essentially have your foot on the gas, full steam ahead with inflammation, foot off the brake, nothing to stop it, just go. Interesting hypothesis that the details are still being worked out, whether that's actually reflected in the proteins that are made in the body that actually control these processes. Uh, it seems that there's a, a story aligned with um, glucocorticoid insensitivity. So you get a lot of release of cortisol, but you don't see the appropriate receptor and downstream uh, responses to cortisol having been released. Um, you can get more and more of it and it doesn't have the same impact as it might have otherwise. Still, it's, uh, it's a process that's still under research. Um, yeah. The other thing that you might think of when you think of health consequences are even health behaviors. And that's a pretty obvious one, but it is the case that lonely people tend not to be as active. They are more sedentary. They tend to become less active with age, whereas the less lonely people tend to maintain activity levels. Some evidence suggesting that lonely people don't eat as good a diet. Um, there's certainly research from our lab that shows that lonely people don't sleep as well. And it isn't even that they don't have as much sleep, it's that it's not the quality sleep that they would need. They wake up feeling exhausted. And if you actually use a sleep cap or some kind of sleep measure, um, what we've done is use both um, a watch type mechanism as well as a simple uh, sleep cap um, device. And we find that lonely people are not experiencing as much good solid sleep. It's more of what we call micro awakenings, just interrupted sleep. They may not even be aware of it, but they're not getting a solid deep sleep. And the other thing that arises from that um, is again, linking it to the HPA axis and cortisol. We know that people who are lonely or lonelier tend to wake up feeling more stressed. And the cortisol response to awakening, which is typical when you first awaken, cortisol surges in your body just to prepare you for the day. It is a significantly larger response in lonelier people than non-lonely people. In large part, we think because something you had mentioned, they're anticipating this is going to be a hard day. You know, it's cognitively challenging to prepare for a day when you're on your own, literally and metaphorically, and you don't feel like you have the connections you need to, to survive the day. You're, on, you're having to deal with the stress all on your own. I think it's amazing how these things are really hardwired into us. You know, uh, we like to think of ourselves as these physical beings and, you know, I can go around and live my life and, uh, you know, whatever I consume and whatever I do, that kind of, uh, that's it for my health. Uh, but the social connection, this uh, really, uh, you know, deep instinct that we have, if we don't get it, it's almost like we're, uh, you know, denying ourselves nourishment in a sense. Right. And it has this really strong cascade effect 
you know, as you said, the HPA access and this rush of cortisol constantly. And cortisol isn't a bad guy unless it's yeah. a chronic, you know, we need right. it. And it has a lot of uh, a good functions in the body. But when it's chronic and if uh, and you know, elevated, yeah. elevated and, and if we develop insensitivity to it, uh, then we have a problem. And uh, for whoever isn't really familiar with this idea of inflammation, I'll just say that it's really at the root of a lot of the Western diseases that yes. we know today. Uh, so yes. this is uh, this is really serious. And, you know, I did hear uh, someone uh, say you're you're better off uh, smoking and having a lot of friends uh, than, you know, not smoking and being socially isolated. I I don't know if I would uh, if I would recommend a smoking habit, yeah. uh, but yeah. but it's as serious. It's as yeah. uh uh, as negative uh, for your health. So I think it's really important to draw attention to that. Uh, and if, you know, someone who's feeling lonely uh, and, and socially anxious needs a little extra motivation, I hope this uh, this does help, uh, you know, to push them yeah, out, out it's, the door. It's, inter it's interesting that despite the fact that it's, it's assumed to be a natural, we're born into families, we're schooled with people, we're always around people. It's, it might seem ironic or maybe even foolish for for people to consider treating the social aspect of ourselves as something that warrants attention because after all it's just there all the time what's the problem but it is a problem in the sense that we take it for granted and we don't nurture relationships all through life i mean i think it really comes out in the later life i, I remember one uh, dutch researcher spoke to groups in the Netherlands about uh, friendships. And in her research, she found that people need to have about five friends to really be satisfied in older age. Um, a lot of older adults lose friendships over time, not because they die, but that happens, but because they haven't been nurturing them. They have been focused on maybe a spouse, maybe a family. They haven't taken friends with them through their lives. And to form them in later life is a challenge. You have to essentially relearn or learn those social skills needed to develop friendships of the type that are going to satisfy you. And that's maybe a bit of a commentary about uh, society now in the sense that we're very mobile. We don't take our friends with us, literally. We don't keep necessarily uh, good contact with friends we've had in the past. And yet, when you talk to older adults, the relationships they really value are those where they shared a past. They have stories to tell from 50 years ago or longer about things they experienced together or at least know enough about to talk about. Um, in which case they find their in-laws often as good a substitute, if you want to call it that, they become their friends because these are people, even if they've lost their sibling, that sibling's spouse is able to relate in a historical sense, not just a here and now sense. So there's a, a building of trust and shared interest that, that over time really builds on your social capital, if you want to call it that. Absolutely. I think, you know, this idea of uh, 
relationships that uh, develop over years and are cultivated over years. And maybe there are ebbs and flows in terms of uh, how much uh, we see each other. But I think nurturing these relationships is really, really important. Planning for old age, I think, is something that we don't really do. Uh, I, you know, I joked with my husband, uh, we have, we uh, don't have kids yet. Uh, but you know, we're talking about it. And, you know, one of the things I, I told him is that the relationship you have with your children is going to dictate what your end of life is going to look like what your last 20 years are going to look like you want to have a good relationship with them also for the selfish reason of of you know them wanting you around and yeah. you know being around your grandchildren and i don't think that's something uh we we really talk about these days uh and just these uh, you know, the intergenerational um, friendships and relationships and communities that we've kind of lost, uh, you mm -hmm. know, in Israel, uh, where, where I live, uh, we still have that, you know, we see our grandparents at least every weekend. Um, and, and there is that sense of community. But I think in places where, where you do lose that or where just the physical distance, you know, makes it so you only see each other, uh, you know, on holidays, uh, makes, makes, you know, the cultivation of, of friendships very, very important. And I think, you know, another thing that I uh, recently heard was for men, you know, we know that women uh, have an easier time with the one-on-one -on -one, uh, intimate friendships. And uh, if, if those last, uh, they, they become really strong over the years. Yeah. But one of the things uh, that, they've seen uh, with male loneliness is that in their 20s, men usually have more friends uh, than women do. But that flips around their 40s, right? Whether it's, uh, you know, family life and, uh, you know, different priorities. But a lot of it has to do with the fact that they don't really cultivate uh, and don't really uh, nurture those uh, relationships. They don't keep in touch. They kind of feel like, we've always been friends, so they'll, they'll right. stick around. But right. I think this practice of, you know, just checking in um, yeah. and, and touching base uh, is really important. And it's something that really uh, gives our life meaning. Uh, and right. I think just thinking of others as well, you know, uh, sometimes we, we think, you know, they're, they're not going to want to talk to me or, uh, you know, they know I like them, they know we're good friends, but checking in uh, can be really meaningful for people. So yeah, just to build on that a bit, there's some research too showing that loneliness is not a unidimensional construct, meaning there are, you might even call them types of loneliness. I mean, they're all very related, but there is, um, when we've done what we call a factor analysis on the UCLA loneliness scale, we find three facets. There is one that we have identified as um, we, we term these in the opposite of loneliness, by the way, we call it intimate connectedness. So very low mm -hmm. on levels of intimate loneliness and pretty much what it sounds like, that factor, that type of loneliness is most closely related to whether you have a spouse or a romantic partner, a serious romantic partner. There's another aspect that we call relational connectedness and that's the friendships um, of the type I think you're talking about, their dyads, their confidants, that you share intimacies with them, but it's not an intimate relationship. It's just a very close friendship, very trusting. There is a third type called collective connectedness. And that's more 
a belonging to a, a group of some kind, feeling a connection that these are my people, I belong here, I fit. That is how we find men and women differ. Men have a higher sense of collective connectedness. Women have a higher sense of relational connectedness. They both need both. They both value both types of connectedness. It's just that you see it uh, collective connectedness playing a bigger part in men. And I think even in their 20s, when they have a lot of friends, they're not sit down over a tea or a glass of beer and share intimacies. They're, they're hanging out. They're kind of a group. And that persists, I think, especially in, um, in males, but increasing, increasingly in females, too. You see in young adulthood when they start careers, you can't be too close because oftentimes you're in competition with the very people that are your friends. And so you have to be careful. <laughs> so women find themselves often being the social secretaries for the family, for the men, too. And it's part of the reason why men tend to fare less well when they're widowed than women do, because they don't have anyone. They haven't gotten into the practice of keeping those weekly connections or whatever they are alive. And now they have to develop that skill or take the initiative to make those contacts. It's just a, a bit more of a stretch for men than it is for women. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, the the male style is one where, uh, you know, you're not gonna, as you said, uh, sit over a cup of coffee and share, uh, you know, your your worries and your troubles and how the kids are doing, not necessarily, uh, you know, maybe with a childhood friend, but I know that, uh, you know, my, my husband can come home after, uh, you know, a night with uh, some of his friends. And I ask, you know, how, how are their wives doing? How are their yeah. children doing? What, what did you guys talk about? And like, yeah. they talked about politics and cars. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they had a really good time. They had a really yeah. good time. But, uh, but, but both, both are important, you know, both yeah. forms are important. And uh, definitely, um, I think if you if you don't have those deeper friendships, if you're in a bind, um, that that can really uh, be difficult. Yeah, but I think, yeah, I think that's also important to, you know, remember the value of uh, intimate relationships in our culture today. We're so individualistic and uh, yeah. the the value of a committed relationship is oftentimes, um, you know, not discussed enough. And, uh, you know, we talk about keeping our options open and uh, not settling down. And uh, yeah. I think I think that uh, sense of connection uh, that you mm -hmm. can get when someone really knows you and uh, you know, you're committed uh, for life. And this is a partner uh, to go through the ups and downs of life with. Uh, mm. I think that's so much more meaningful uh, than, you know, Tinder <laughs> to yeah. say the least. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so I think that's also uh, just something that we need to, to know in terms of, uh, you know, life is long and uh, it has many seasons and you want to make sure you're setting yourself up uh, to enjoy those seasons as much as possible. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so I would love to talk a little bit about, you know, the causes of this rise in loneliness. And I know that you focus more on the aging population, but we do see, uh, you know, a rise of loneliness in the younger generation these days. And there's been a lot of speculation, uh, but I would, uh, um, I would go out on a limb and say social media has something to do with it. 
Uh, so I'm yeah. wondering, uh, you know, what research you're familiar with in this space on why loneliness is on the rise? Yeah, in younger adults, um, a lot of work from Gene Twenge um, feeds into that um, social media loneliness connection. It's not consistent, depends on the study you're looking at. But for example, there is a, an ongoing study called the American Time Use Survey that takes all adults, I think age 18 and older, and for a week, every day, ask them how much time they spent doing various types of activities. And since 1977, I think it is, um, yeah, maybe not that long, but it's been a long time. There's been a steady decrease in the proportion of time that young people spend with friends, even before social media hit the stage. And then when social media became a big thing, oftentimes people equate that with the launch of the smartphone. So around 2012, then the rate of in-person interactions dropped even more. You know, they didn't spend much time with friends at all in person. It doesn't necessarily equate to loneliness um, in a causal kind of way in that the research has also shown it matters how you use social media. So if you use social media to replace friendships and you're just going after whatever interesting bait there happens to be on your feed, that may make things worse. You will be exposed to... Um, you know, everybody does impression management on their media sites. They make themselves look good. So you could start to look really bad because you're seeing very nicely groomed images of other people. Um, or you get lost in, I'll say trivial, it needn't even be trivial, but it can be conversations that are not, um, they're not getting at the core of people's beliefs. They're not connecting in a way that builds trust. It's about safe topics, whether it's cars or, and if it's not safe topics, it's topics that you can talk about in a dispassionate way and not feel like yourself is somehow jeopardized. So I think people who use, the research seems to show that people who use social media in ways that build on existing friendships see a positive effect. And this is true, I would say, in one instance where it's really effective is for older adults, because who are they connecting with? They're not using social media oftentimes like, like younger people would. They have very distinct purposes when they're using social media, and that is to check out the grandkids or <laughs> the kids. I mean, it's a way to connect with people who are meaningful to them. And that's where I think we have kind of missed the boat um, in not being able to identify and steer people to the uses that will make them feel better rather than worse. Um, right. So yeah, I think there is a role for social media. It's, it's going to be understanding who's using it, how, and how can it be used better. Right, right. I think, uh, you know, I heard Jonathan Haidt uh, talk about this distinction, which I found very interesting of how we used to call social media, we used to call it social networks. And now yeah. we call it social media platforms. He says yeah. there's a very uh, different um, function uh, for each of these social networks are 
supposed to connect us socially and social media platforms are a place where an individual, you know, stands and broadcasts their ideas and their uh, beliefs and, you know, their personality out into the world. And uh, that distortion, I think, is very problematic because it really leaves uh, the, the connections that we can have there on a very superficial level. And I think you touched upon these, you know, safe topics and this kind of idea of even if we're around people, are we actually connecting? And, you know, Brene Brown has this uh, great uh, kind of saying of uh, when we try to fit in, we rob ourselves of the chance of belonging. And, you know, the reason is if we're not being authentic, uh, you know, if we're not expressing our true opinions if we're not expressing our you know emotions and our our you know just being uh you know our spontaneous beings as we are and uh we constantly try to you know moderate ourselves and censor ourselves in in you know in terms of what we think other people want from us we it's never get that connection. Yeah. Yeah. As you can see, it's interesting because that word authentic is a, is a really important one. And I just heard that. I think, who is it? Merriam Webster. It's the word of the year here in the U S authentic. They have words of the year. That's one of them. <laughs> wow. Um, but what I was thinking, as you were saying is we're in a society where we should probably, probably pay as much attention to, how much we're allowing other people to be authentic as we are trying to be authentic ourselves. I think we're spending a lot of time um, squashing other people's opinions, beliefs, presence as being um, invalid, not valued, unvaluable. Um, And if not that, maybe even worse, like you're just, you're just scum on the face of the earth, go away. You know, it's, you're not allowing authenticity. And I think we need to go there. I think we need to do more talking in a very um, open and accepting way. We don't have to be converted or to convert anybody. We just need to be able to talk civilly and understand that this person we're having a chat with has the same probably a lot of the same life issues and concerns as we do. They just have a different approach to it. And coming to understand that can go a long way in in at least advancing civility and permitting people to be who they are. I think that would in itself, I don't have data on this, but that should um, moderate tendencies to just overreact. Absolutely. I guess I could say there is one um, example that um, I, I found particularly um, provocative. There was an experiment done in uh, 2020, I think. <clears throat> was it during the pandemic? No, it was after the pandemic, I think. Anyway, it's called America in One Room. And so some of the academic institutions, together with the institution I work with, the National Opinion Research Center, put together a representative sample of adults in the US, representative in the sense that they wanted diversity of political opinion, but also of gender, race, age. And they got, I wanna say 400 plus people 
to agree to a one-week-long convening in a central location where they had moderated conversations with each other every day for a week. And they, the moderators very carefully and intentionally brought up hot-button issues so that people with very different political persuasions could had agreed they were going to talk about these. And so what they learned over the course, what these participants learned over the course of the week was that these are people, we're all people. We're not, you know, as one person put it, we're not reptiles, <laughs> we all are humans. At the end of that time, they saw that there was a very significant, a sizable shift in how extreme people's beliefs were about the other political party. Like they used to say, you know, 90% of Republicans believe this, or 90% of Democrats believe this. And then they learned, no, it's not quite that bad. Like there might be some percentage of Republicans, maybe 30%, and 20 of Democrats, whatever. So there was a shifting. They learned to see people as people, not as stereotypes of whatever extreme they, the media might have presented to them. It didn't convert anybody, but it did make them tolerant and listening, able to listen. Two years later, they repolled those people and that held. So I think those are the kinds of contexts we need to foster our own ability to be authentic and our ability to let other people be authentic. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that uh, allowing uh, people to express their opinions openly, something that's very much missing in our society today and definitely social media and these echo chambers that exist online you know, aggravate this polarization. And there's something about just human contact and actually hearing people out, meeting, you know, face to face and and seeing that even if someone has a different opinion, it doesn't come from a place of malice. It comes from a place of, you know, seeing the world a little differently and uh, prioritizing our values in a different way. Uh, mm -hmm. But I think that, you know, we see uh, this political correctness, uh, you know, to put it lightly, uh, and really the social policing, where if you, you know, don't toe the line, and you're not in a very specific camp of ideas, you're not allowed that, you know, variation and variability of, of, of thought, even with, within your own group, yeah. uh, not to mention uh, with another group. So I think that's really, really important. And that's something uh, that is, very different, um, you know, between America and Israel. In Israel, people are very authentic. <laughs> we, we are very vocal about our opinions, you know, for what better or worse. What you get. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and you know, there's, there's a lot of comfort in that because uh, even if there are disputes and conflicts, whether it's in the family, it's between friends, or whether it's uh, in politics, everything is out in the open. And... Uh, it does allow for a stronger sense of belonging because you can be yourself, you know, right. and, you're, and you're more accepted for the spectrum of, of ideas that you have. And, you know, we, right. we have that. We have, uh, you know, family members who are on the left or, and who are on the right. Yeah. And, uh, 
and 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 we're still we still belong to one another so i think yeah. i think that's lost uh in yeah. america unfortunately so they, yeah yeah that raises the question though what what allows america to, as well there are families that are split you know right left but they don't always continue talking to each other. So what makes for the difference? And I don't know about the situation in Israel, but it does make me think of one of the things that's effective in making these exercises like America in one room, what makes them work is you have different opinions, but you have one problem. You have to, between all of you, you have to solve this problem. In Japan, they've done this quite, quite well. They've had many of these and if you coalesce around a common goal, you can create a solution, which they did and presented it in a referendum and the public bought it. Something, and this was around, now I may be misstating, this may not have been Japan, this may have been a Northern European country, but in any event, there are a number of countries that have done this. Um, you don't get that kind of, buy-in, you don't even get the permission for politicians to raise solutions like that because they're seen as occupying a position on the spectrum. But if you can get people talking to each other around a common purpose and come up with a solution, they're representing the populace. They can make things happen. So I'm thinking in Israel, when you have families that stick together, they might have some underlying belief or purpose that unites them regardless of differences between them. We are uh, closer to reality in a certain sense here. Um, you know, we, we have to confront um, the difficulties of uh, life that I don't think uh, the average American family uh, has experienced. Yeah. Uh, so, so that need to, to stay together and to stay one unit uh, is much stronger. And, uh, you know, we had a lot of, uh, uh, political disagreements in the last year, uh, you know, a government that uh, a good majority of the country uh, was against the judicial reform uh, that they were trying to uh, to get across. And yet, you know, the, the tragic uh, event of October 7th happened and everyone, uh, you know, it's all hands on deck. Yeah. Uh, whether it's in the military or whether it's just, you yeah. know, the logistical it's manpower like of the, like the volunteers. Right. Like the U.S. 9-11. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So sometimes, you know, it's it's uh, it's having that shared narrative. And I think that, uh, unfortunately, you know, in America, you, you used to have that. Uh, you know, you had uh, the American dream, uh, which kind of brought everyone together. And there was like a shared idea of what we're doing here, what this American project is, and we're all a part of it, uh, you know, even within, um, even with the multicultural, uh, you know, flavor uh, of America. And I think that American dream, that shared narrative, like the value system for what we stand for is, is being reevaluated. And I really hope to see, uh, to see, you know, uh, uh, more unity, uh, to say the least. And I think I think, you know, that loneliness of feeling alone in the world, you know, not at home in the world. It's a very existential feeling right. that's aggravated also by not feeling a sense of belonging to exactly, this wider. That's yeah, exactly community. how I've thought of it, too. It's it's a societal contributor to loneliness. It isn't just our individual loneliness. It's the fact that the context we're in 
is not making it easy for us to feel connected, like we belong, like we're part of a collective. And I think that's the aspect of loneliness that is probably one of the bigger contributors to the increase in loneliness that we're seeing, whether it's an epidemic level or not. It's all the shortcomings of our societal infrastructure, our, our policies, our procedures uh, that just make it difficult. And I think the goal for governments, and this was nicely stated actually by the first um, Minister of Loneliness in the UK, she with another person who I, whose name is blank, I'm blanking on right now, but they said something like, it is not government's job to make friends for us. It is their job to make it easier for us as a population to talk to each other, to connect. So that's where I think we should be focusing our energy in terms of larger structural issues that contribute to loneliness. Yes, I think, you know, on the individual level, uh, what we can all do is focus on our our closer communities, you know, our local communities, whether that's, you know, the friends that we do have and uh, nurturing those friendships, right. uh, you know, checking in, seeing how they're doing, yeah. uh, finding uh, an intimate partner, uh, because, uh, you know, for for. Uh, whatever uh, the modern culture is selling, you know, the the casual hookups and, uh, you know, keeping your options open. I don't think that there's anything that beats having someone who's really in your corner uh, that you can spend life mm-hmm. with and focusing on the family, you know, keeping keeping in touch with people who are close to you even if you don't agree with their politics, right. you know, but calling grandma, uh, she'll, she'll love oh, that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, but, but, you know, I've heard, uh, you know, like just doing research for this episode, one of the things that uh, I heard over and over again is people who are in a new city, uh, who are very lonely, uh, you know, whatever their age is, they go and volunteer. And, and a lot of them go volunteer with, uh, you know, people in uh uh, you know, in old age homes and that uh, sense of connection of just doing something good for the people around you in your local community is an immediate way yeah. to to start feeling better right yeah, now. Yeah, any sense of purpose really helps you feel like you belong. And volunteering is one of those ways. I and mean, it's good for young people, but it's also good for older people. I was just thinking of the interventions that have been introduced to help reduce loneliness intergenerational interventions to the point where in some countries and in some parts of the U.S. you even see co-living. You see uh, university students living in old age homes where there are vacancies um, with the condition that they are uh, spending some of their time in camaraderie. So they're playing games with people, they're giving them rides to wherever they need to go, and they're getting a reduced living rate living in that home so it's a win-win but it turns out to be aside from practical it's a very emotionally um, satisfying experience and it's a way to get rid of some of our ageist tendencies yes and if you want to be around authentic people you know, spend some time in an old age home. (laughs) People who are, you know, at the last chapter of life, uh, they are much more comfortable being themselves. And I think that's, uh, uh, it rubs off on you. It's a, it's a, you know, 
good spirits. Right. So I think I think that's a great place to stop. Thank you so much, Louise, yeah, uh, you know, for your time. Yes, yes, it was so interesting. And I think this is really important for people to know. Uh, and I really appreciate your work. So thank, thank you. you.